Chapter Five of As We Forgive Them by William Lecue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Five, in which the mystery becomes considerably increased. That the precious document, or whatever it was, sewn up in the wash leather which the dead man had so carefully guarded through all those years was now missing was in itself a very suspicious circumstance, while Mabel's vague but distinct apprehensions, which she either would not or could not define, now aroused my suspicions that Burton Blair had been the victim of foul play. Immediately after leaving her I therefore drove to Bedford Row and held another consultation with Leighton, to whom I explained my grave fears. As I have already explained, Mr. Greenwood, responded the solicitor, leaning back in his padded chair and regarding me gravely through his glasses. I believe that my client did not die a natural death. There was some mystery in his life, some strange romantic circumstances, which, unfortunately, he never thought fit to confide to me. He held a secret, he told me, and by knowledge of that secret he obtained his vast wealth. Only half an hour ago I made a rough calculation of the present value of his estate, and at the lowest I believe it will be found to amount to over two and a half millions. The whole of this, I may tell you in confidence, goes unreservedly to his daughter, with the exception of several legacies, which include ten thousand each to Mr. Seton and to yourself, two thousand to Mrs. Percival, and some small sums to the servants. But, he added, there is a clause in the will which is very puzzling, and which closely affects yourself. As we both suspect foul play, I think I may as well at once show it to you without waiting for my unfortunate client's burial and the formal reading of the will. Then he rose, and from a big black deed-box lettered Burton Blair, Esquire, he took out the dead man's will, and opening it, showed me a passage which read, 10. I give and bequeath to Gilbert Greenwood of the Cedars Helpstone, the small bag of chamois leather that will be found upon me at the time of my death, in order that he may profit by what is contained therein, and as recompense for certain valuable services rendered to me. Let him recollect always this rhyme. Henry the Eighth was a knave to his queens, eat one short of seven and nine or ten scenes, and let him well and truly preserve the secret from every man, just as I have done. That was all. A strange clause, surely. Burton Blair had, after all, actually bequeathed his secret to me, the secret that had brought him his colossal wealth. Yet it was already lost, probably stolen by his enemies. That's a curious doggerel, the solicitor smiled. But poor Blair possessed but little literary culture, I fear. He knew more about the sea than poetry. Yet, after all, it seems a tantalizing situation that you should be left in the secret of the source of my client's enormous fortune, and that it should be stolen from you in this manner. We had, I think, better consult the police and explain our positions, I said, in bitter chagrin that the chamois sachet should have fallen into other hands. I entirely agree with you, Mr. Greenwood. We will go together to Scotland Yard and get them to institute inquiries. If Mr. Blair was actually murdered, then his assassination was accomplished in a most secret and remarkable manner, to say the least. 
but there is one further clause in the will which is somewhat disturbing, and that is with regard to his daughter Mabel. The testator has appointed some person of whom I have never heard, a man called Paolo Melandrini, an Italian apparently living in Florence, to be her secretary and the manager of her affairs. What? I cried, amazed. An Italian to be her secretary? Who is he? A person with whom I am not acquainted, whose name indeed has never been mentioned to me by my client. He merely dictated it to me when I drafted the will. But the thing's absurd, I exclaimed. Surely you can't let an unknown foreigner, who may be an adventurer for all we know, have control of all her money. I fear there's no help for it, replied Leighton gravely. It is written here, and we shall be compelled to give notice to this man, whoever he is, of his appointment at a salary of five thousand pounds a year. And will he really have control of her affairs? Absolutely. Indeed, the whole estate is left to her on condition that she accepts this fellow as her secretary and confidential adviser. Why, Blair must have been mad, I exclaimed. Has Mabel any knowledge of this mysterious Italian? She has never heard of him. Well, in that case, I think that before he is informed of poor Blair's death and the good fortune in store for him, we ought at least to find out who and what he is. We can in any case keep a watchful eye on him and see that he doesn't trick Mabel out of her money. The lawyer sighed, wiped his glasses slowly, and said, He will have the entire management of everything. Therefore it will be difficult to know what goes on or how much he puts into his own pocket. But whatever could possess Blair to insert such a mad clause as that? Didn't you point out the folly of it? I did. And what did he say? He reflected a few moments over my words, sighed, and then answered, It is imperative, Leighton. I have no other alternative. Therefore from that I took it that he was acting under compulsion. You believe that this foreigner was in a position to demand it, eh? The solicitor nodded. He evidently was of opinion that the reason of the introduction of this unknown person into Mabel's household was a secret one, known only to Burton Blair and to the individual himself. It was curious, I reflected, that Mabel herself had not mentioned it to me. Yet perhaps she had hesitated because I had told her of my promise to her father, and she did not wish to hurt my feelings. The whole situation became hourly more complicated and more mysterious. I was, however, bent upon accomplishing two things. First, to recover the millionaire's most precious possession, which he had bequeathed to me, together with such an extraordinary injunction to recollect that doggerel couplet which still ran in my head, and secondly, to make private inquiries regarding this unknown foreigner who had so suddenly become introduced into the affair. That same evening at six o'clock, having met Reggie by appointment at Mr. Leighton's office, we all three drove to Scotland Yard, where we had a long consultation with one of the head officials, to whom we explained the circumstances and our suspicions of foul play. Well, he replied at length, of course I will institute inquiries in Manchester and elsewhere, but as the medical evidence has proved so conclusively that the gentleman in question died from natural causes, I cannot hold out very much hope that our department or the Manchester Detective Department can assist you. The grounds you have for supposing that he met with foul play are very vague, you must admit. 
and as far as I can see, the only motive at all was the theft of this paper or whatever it was which he carried upon him. Yet men are not usually killed in broad daylight in order to commit a theft which any expert pickpocket might effect. Besides, if his enemy's arrivals knew what it was and how he was in the habit of carrying it, they could easily have secured it without assassination. "'But he was in possession of some secret,' remarked the solicitor. "'Of what character?' I have, unfortunately, no idea. Nobody knows. All that we are aware of is that its possession raised him from poverty to affluence, and that one person, if not more, was eager to obtain possession of it. Naturally, remarked the grey-haired assistant director of criminal investigations. But who was this person? Unfortunately, I do not know. My client told me this a year ago, but mentioned no name then you have no suspicion whatever of any one. None. The little bag of wash-leather inside which the document was sewn has been stolen, and this fact arouses our suspicion of foul play. The hidebound official shook his head very dubiously. That is not enough upon which to base a suspicion of murder, especially as we have had all the evidence at the inquest, a post-mortem and a unanimous verdict of the coroner's jury. No, gentlemen, he added, I don't see any ground for really grave suspicion. The document may not have been stolen after all. Mr. Blair seems to have been of a somewhat eccentric disposition, like many men who suddenly rise in the world, and he may have hidden it away for safe keeping somewhere. To me, this seems by far the most likely theory, especially as he had expressed a fear that his enemies sought to gain possession of it but surely if there is suspicion of murder, it is the duty of the police to investigate it, I exclaimed resentfully. Grant it. But where is the suspicion? Neither doctors, coroner, local police, nor jury entertain the slightest doubt that he died from natural causes, he argued. In that case, the Manchester police have neither right nor necessity to interfere. But there has been a theft. What proof have you of it? he asked raising his grey eyebrows and tapping the table with his pen. If you can show me that a theft has been committed, then I will put in motion the various influences at my command. On the contrary, you merely suspect that this something sewn in a bag has been stolen. Yet it may be hidden in some place difficult to find, but nevertheless in safety. As, however, you all three allege that the unfortunate gentleman was assassinated in order to gain possession of this mysterious little packet of which he was so careful. I will communicate with the Manchester City Police and ask them to make what inquiries they can. Further than that, gentlemen, he added suavely, I fear that my department cannot assist you. Then all I have to reply, remarked Mr. Leighton bluntly, is that the public opinion of the futility of this branch of the police in the detection of crime is fully justified and I shall not fail to see that public attention is called to the matter through the press. It's simply a disgrace. I am only acting, sir, upon my instructions, conjointly with what you have yourself told me, was his answer. I assure you that if I ordered inquiries to be made in every case in which persons are alleged to have been murdered, I should require a detective force as large as the British Army." Why, not a day passes without I receive dozens of secret callers and anonymous letters, all alleging assassination, generally against some person towards whom they entertain a dislike. 
Eighteen years of head of this department, however, has, I think, taught me how to distinguish a case for inquiry, which yours is not. Argument proved futile. The official mind was made up that Burton Blair had not fallen a victim to foul play, therefore we could hope for no assistance. So with our dissatisfaction rather plainly marked, we rose and went out again into Whitehall. It's a scandal, Reggie declared angrily. Poor Blair has been murdered, everything points to it, and yet the police won't lift a finger to assist us to reveal the truth, just because a doctor discovered that he had a weak heart. It's placing a premium on crime, he added, his fist clenched savagely. I'll relate the whole thing to my friend Mills, the member for West Derbyshire, and get him to ask a question in the house. We'll see what this new home secretary says to it. It'll be a nasty pill for him, I'll wager. Oh, he'll have some typewritten official excuse ready, never fear, laughed Leighton. If they won't help us, we must make inquiries for ourselves. The solicitor parted from us in Trafalgar Square, arranging to meet us at Grosvenor Square after the funeral when the will would be formally read before the dead man's daughter and her companion, Mrs. Percival. And then he added, we shall have to take some active steps to discover this mysterious person who is in future to control her fortune. I'll undertake the inquiries, I said. Fortunately, I speak Italian. Therefore, before we give him notice of Blair's death, I'll go out to Florence and ascertain who and what he is. Truth to tell, I had a suspicion that the letter which I had secured from the dead man's blotting-book, and which I had kept secretly to myself, had been written by this unknown individual, Paolo Melandrini. Although it bore neither address nor signature, and was in a heavy and rather uneducated hand, it was evidently the letter of a Tuscan for I detected in it certain phonetic spelling which was purely Florentine. Translated, the strange communication read as follows. Your letter reached me only this morning. The Sico, blind man, is in Paris, on his way to London. The girl is with him, and they evidently know something. So be very careful. He and his ingenious friends will probably try and trick you. I am still at my post, but the water has risen three meters on account of the heavy rains. Nevertheless, farming has been good, so I shall expect to meet you at Vespers in San Fredanio on the evening of the 6th of next month. I have something most important to tell you. Recollect that Sico means mischief, and act accordingly. Adio. Times without number, I carefully translated the curious missive word for word. It seemed full of hidden meaning. What seemed most probable was that the person known as the blind man who was Blair's enemy had actually been successful in gaining possession of that precious little sachet of chamois leather that was now mine by right, together with the mysterious secret it contained. End of chapter 5. Recording by Tom Weiss. Tom's Audiobooks.com.